0: We are starting a new sermon series here on the book of uh, Deuteronomy. Um, It's exciting. It's going to be a great series. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, We're going to get more in our sermon today as to why we chose this book. And um, as we prepare for uh, the sermon here, would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Lord, we're so thankful for the gift of your word. Lord, it is so rich and varied. There is so much uh, in it that we don't always understand. Lord, words of comfort and encouragement, rebuke, challenge, conviction, guidance, direction. Lord, poems, laws, narratives, histories, biographies. Lord, we pray that as we turn to your word this morning and as we embark on this new series in the Old Testament, words that may be at times unfamiliar or even uncomfortable for us. Lord, I pray that you would guide our thinking, guide our worship. Lord, open our hearts to hear from you through it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So have you ever been on one of these moving walkways at the airport before? You know what I mean? These like giant conveyor belts that you use to get from point A to point B through these huge terminal buildings. Which is kind of nice after a long flight when you're tired or if you have a lot of luggage, a lot going on, a lot of kids. It's a lot of fun, right? You just step on it. You don't have to think. It just takes you where you need to go next. Which is really great when you're in the airport, except, uh, I don't know about you, but recently my whole life has felt like I'm trapped on one of these giant conveyor belts, one of these moving walkways, and I cannot get off, right? There's no going backwards. It just keeps moving me relentlessly forward in life, and it's like all I can do. I want to be back there, but it just keeps going. Now, at leads to the airport. I know where this moving walkway is taking me, but right now I have no idea what is coming next. You've probably heard someone say before, change is the only constant in life. And that's so true because nothing ever stays the same. The stuff in my house, it keeps breaking down and falling apart and needing to be replaced. Right? The yard needs constant attention. My oldest daughter is just finishing up her first year of college, which is mind-boggling to me, and my next youngest is about to start college, My mom passed away a little over a year ago, and my dad is now on hospice care for his cancer. I know many of you are facing similar transitions in life, right? High school and and college students getting ready to graduate, people starting new jobs, embarking on new careers, moving to new parts of the country, getting married, having babies. It's hard to keep up with all this activity. But what does any of that have to do with the book of Deuteronomy. Well, as the book opens, we find the people of God standing, facing perhaps the biggest transition of their lives. Right? They're standing right on the very edge of the promised land, staring across the River Jordan at their future. Think about it. The promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promise that had sustained them through 400 years of slavery and brutality and oppression in Egypt. The promise that had kept them going through 40 years of wandering in the desert. That promise was about to be fulfilled. Everything they had hoped and dreamed for was about to come true. And yet there was still this lingering sense of uncertainty about what lay ahead. What would it look like? How would they manage? Could they really pull this off? Was God actually going to make this happen? And so Moses, knowing that he wouldn't be there to walk them into the land himself, he wouldn't be there to lead them into this future, he stops and he takes one last moment to speak to his people. A professor Daniel Block says, Mose, the Moses that you're going to encounter in this book and through this series, he says he's more of a, of a pastor, a preacher, than a lawgiver, right? Preaching these messages to his people, encouraging them, exhorting them, blessing them as they prepare to embark on this new adventure in life. Let me read to you from almost the very end of the book of Deuteronomy. In chapter 32, Moses said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Moses summarizes everything everything that he's been saying to them in the previous 32 chapters. And then he says, these words are life. Life Life-giving words from God himself through Moses meant to encourage and sustain and strengthen and equip the people for whatever lay ahead on the other side of the Jordan. And this great book in the Old Testament, functions in much the same way for us still today, as we face our own uncertain futures, not knowing what lies ahead. Deuteronomy is a book filled with words of life, the words of God himself written to you and for you. To bring you sustenance and and strength as that walkway of life carries you relentlessly forward into the future. That's why we're going to study the book of Deuteronomy over the coming months. But first things first, what on earth does this word Deuteronomy even mean? Right? Right? Well, you can blame the very first, uh, earliest Bible translators for this. Remember, the Old Testament, written almost entirely in Hebrew, and around 300 or 400 years before the birth of Christ, uh, the, the Greek culture had spread throughout the Mediterranean world, and so they're like, hey, we need to translate this into Greek. So they got together, they translated the Old Testament into Greek, and in translating the books, they gave them titles. And for this fifth book in the canon uh, of Scripture... They got their inspiration from uh, chapter 17 of uh, Deuteronomy, verse 18, which says this, And when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. Now later we'll get into what all that is going on there, but essentially they were supposed to, when the king came to power, he was supposed to come down and make his own copy of the law and keep it with him. So, when they translated this phrase that in the Hebrew says, a copy of this law, when they translated that into the Greek, they said, took that phrase and they said, this is a second law, a second law, deutero, second, namas, law, second law. And the name kind of stuck from there. So, now you can gain extra points on your Bible trivia (laughs) team competition. But here's why I bring this up. Here's why this matters. Because in the Hebrew, the books of the Bible are titled according to the opening words of each book. So for Deuteronomy, the book opens as follows. You got that? You can all read that, right? It goes from that side to that side. And it says, Ele hadabarim, which means, These are the words. So for the Jewish people, when they were reading these books in the Old Testament, they knew them by the opening words of the book, and the opening words of Deuteronomy are, these are the words, not this is the legal code, or these are the boring stuffy laws, or but, but these are the words over and over again throughout the book. You'll read phrases like, and Moses said, and Moses spoke, and Moses explained, and Moses taught the people, and Moses presented this to the people. Even in just these first opening five verses of the book, that's all we're going to look at today, the first five verses. Look at this. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel Moses spoke to the people of Israel. Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, what does all that mean? This book is the record of a spoken text, right? Sort of like a collection of sermons. As you're reading through Deuteronomy, think of it. This is a collection of sermons, the final sermons of Moses. Something meant to be read aloud. Words intended to move people to action. Do something with this. Now, there are plenty of references to laws in here. In fact, the whole central section of the book, chapters 5 through 26, 27, this is what we would consider to be laws, rules, regulations. We're going to get into all of those. So you can understand where this name of the book, the second law, comes from. Because it's like, wow, we already had a lot of laws in, in Exodus, and now we're getting a whole bunch more. But the framework, right, the context for these laws is a heartfelt plea from Moses to his people to put their trust in God, right? Deuteronomy 6, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your might, all your everything that you have. That's the driving force behind the entire book, loving, willing, eager commitment and faithfulness to God. And the laws then become a way of reflecting that commitment, of living it out in their community. So professor of uh, Old Testament John Thompson says the word Torah really means something more like instruction, not law in the way that we think of laws, rules, and regulations, but like instructions. And so as you're, you're reading through Deuteronomy, I want you to think of this as, as guidance, instructions, a teaching for, for how to love God and how to love your neighbor and how to live in a way that pleases and glorifies God, how to live at peace with one another, how to enjoy the promises and the blessings of God in the promised land. Now, obviously, not all these laws are going to transfer over neatly into our specific cultural context, right? We have the, uh, the famous verse in Deuteronomy about not boiling a goat in its mother's milk. What on earth does that mean? We're going to get to that. Or, you know, you're not allowed to mix wool and linen together in the same cloth. And we have to work through, like, what does all this mean? All these food laws and these... Uh, uh, guidance on offerings and sacrifices and so on. But remember, as you're reading this, Moses is preparing his people for life in a theocracy, a nation with God as their king. And so we're going to have to work to discern what are the correct applications for our context today. Moreover, we have to wrestle with all the ways in which Jesus fulfilled the Torah, How does that impact the way that we now read these texts? But for right now, I want you to, as you're going through this book, I want you to reset your expectations of the law and approach this word as something meant for your blessing, for your encouragement. Not rules that are meant to stifle life, but instructions meant to to enable abundant life. This is perhaps why, why Deuteronomy is quoted so extensively in the New Testament, right? Along with Isaiah and Psalms, Deuteronomy was a beloved text that was central to the devotional life of the Jewish people. So these words of life are the words that enable Jesus to, to battle temptation in the desert, right? Every time... Satan, uh, every time, Jesus quoted Scripture to refute Satan's temptations. And he does so quoting from Deuteronomy. He wasn't throwing legal codes in Satan's face. He was drawing from words that had shaped and formed the fundamental religious identity of the Jewish people for centuries. These are the words describing who the people of God are meant to be, both now and forever. That's why you're going to see repeated references throughout the book to to community-shaping practices that will help guard and shape their identity, even in the context of a hostile surrounding culture, which is yet another reason why this book is going to be so helpful and applicable for us today. Because we, too, seek to live as faithful followers of Christ in a world that, honestly, is not that much different than Canaan, filled with temptations to abandon God, filled with temptations to fall away into sin and idolatry. In Deuteronomy, these words of life, this is a guide to maintaining our faith in such an environment, helping us to stand firm in the desert, as Jesus did, Resisting Satan, relying on God's word to help us and to guide us on the path to blessing and peace. You know, we just heard from uh, a Drew read to us from the book of Hebrews how Jesus is greater than Moses. And as Moses led the people out of Egypt and prepared them for entry into the promised land, Jesus leads his people out of slavery to sin and into the promised land of God's kingdom. Moses spoke on behalf of God, calling people to pursue faithfulness. Jesus speaks as God himself, calling people into faithfulness, enabling them, finally, through the power of the Holy Spirit, changing our hearts so that we can now love and serve God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. Peter saw this, right? Remember when challenged by Jesus, are you going to walk away like everyone else? And Peter responds by saying, Lord, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And so the question for us today is, what are you doing with these life-giving words? What are you doing with them? Week after week, you sit here, you listen to sermons, you take notes, week after week you read your Bible, you, you you write in the in the in the column on the side, you underline things, you highlight things, but but then what? What difference are they making in your in your marriage, in your friendships, in your parenting, in your business relationships, in your schooling? And the way you speak, and in, in the way you think, and the way you act, the way you spend your time and your money, as you prepare to cross into an uncertain future, grab hold of these words of life, and then put them into practice. So Moses is calling his people to do, and that same call extends to us today. Now, as we move forward in the book here, uh, in this opening chapter, we hit a delay. Let me tell you first about, this is my spring break, 1993, right? I'm driving back uh, to Atlanta from visiting with a friend of mine in St. Louis, clear, sunny skies as we're driving down through western Tennessee This is like before iPhones. So, you know, we're not connected. We have no idea what's going on in the world. And we had no idea that we were driving into what was basically called the storm of the century, like the biggest snowstorm to hit the East Coast in the 20th century. And right around Chattanooga, Tennessee, we hit two feet of snow. Now, up here, like, what's two feet of snow to Chicago? It's nothing, right? But you go down to Tennessee, Georgia, they are. They the minds are like blown, like an inch of snow, and it's like complete panic apocalypse. Now, thankfully, so we're stuck. I mean, this is not an actual, like I said, this is like 30 years ago. I didn't have any camera on me, but um, it was very similar to this. Basically, six lanes of traffic, complete dead stop. I mean, people are just walking around like, I don't know what we're going to do. Now, my friend had a Ford Bronco, and so we're in a little bit of a better spot, but it doesn't matter if you have four-wheel drive if there's nowhere for you to drive. So we would turn the engine on for a while and warm ourselves up and then turn it off to try and save gas, and it was just like that all through the night. Now, that journey from Chattanooga down to Atlanta should usually take about two hours. It ended up taking us more like 12 to 15 hours. We made it. But it was quite a delay, to say the least. But it's nothing compared to the lengthy detour that Israelites were forced to take on their way from Egypt to the Promised Land, when 11 days spun out into 40 years. And this brings us to our second big question today. What on earth happened? Why did it take them so long to get to this point? Well, it wasn't snow that slowed them down. It was sin. And we're going to get into the full details of all this in the rest of chapters 1 through 3. But in short, remember, people escaped from Egypt. They, they come down here. They worked their way down probably Mount Sinai here. And then this journey here is about 11 days to get to Kadesh Barnea, right on the, the boundary of the Promised Land. So far, so good, right? Except, you know the story? The people panic. They freak out. They're consumed by fear, and they refuse to go in, despite God's direct command to do so. So as a punishment, God sends them back out into the desert, and they're wandering around. We don't know exactly, but maybe, according to ESV study Bible, uh, maybe something like this all over the place. Walking, 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 walking for 40 years until every one of that generation, except for Caleb and Joshua, they die. God then brings them up the other side now of Canaan, up on the side of the Dead Sea, and now they're over here somewhere on the plains of Moab. Right? Now many of the place names you see in in verses 3 and 4 here, are unknown to us now. But we do know from verse 5 they are camped in these plains opposite Jericho on the, on the east side of the River Jordan here, the plains of Moab. Right? And this is confirmed because later in the end of Deuteronomy, God is going to send Moses up onto Mount Nebo which is maybe around here? And if uh, the biblical archaeologists are to be believe, this is Perhaps the view that he might have seen from the top of Mount Nebo. You can see just here, that's the edge of the Dead Sea. It's the promised land out here. These are the plains of Moab. The River Jordan is probably somewhere over there. This is uh, the view that's part of our title slide for the sermon series. But like I said, this is quite... A detour, especially since the journey should have only taken them two weeks, maybe less than two weeks, except now they, here they are 40 years later. All right, why spend all this time looking at maps and looking at all these geographical details? Because they introduce, Moses is introducing a major theme here for the book of Deuteronomy, a warning for the people, against the dangers of sin and the choices that will be before them every day to choose life or to choose death, to choose blessing or to choose curse. The circuitous route that the people were forced to take, the route that Moses highlights for us, is a visual reminder to the people of all their past failures, a sort of roadmap of spiritual rebellion. But at the same time, it's not all doom and gloom. Because what's also clear from these verses is that you cannot derail God's plans. Now, your sin may delay the promise. Your sin may lead to all kinds of crazy detours. But it cannot derail God's plans. Now, honestly, your sin may mean that some opportunities are lost to you forever. Right, Adultery can lead to divorce. Cheating can lead to expulsion. Lying can lead to broken relationships. Consider it like the entire generation of people who refused to go into the land of Kadesh Barnea, they died. They missed out on the opportunity. They never saw the promised land. But God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was never truly in jeopardy. Delayed maybe, but never derailed. You, and Moses' point here is that you do not toy around with sin. This is his message by by recounting for them all these failures. You don't toy around with sin. You run from it. A few years ago, I was at a Bass Pro Shop in in Dallas, Texas. I don't know why I was in there. I. Had to, I'm not like a big fisherman, but I, I found myself by the. Uh, they had this huge glass box there. This is at the Bass Pro in Grapevine. They have a huge glass box in there with rattlesnakes in it, and they're all in there, pressed up in the corner of the box, piled on top of each other. As the closest I have ever been to a rattlesnake, I never want to be that close again. They are terrifying, right? Now you would never dream of sticking your hand in that box, right? And yet, how often do we essentially do exactly that when we choose to oppose the living God? Now, I'm not talking about the big sins that we pride ourselves on not doing, like, oh, I've never killed anyone, I've never stolen anything. What about all the times when we choose to let our thought lives run wild and free, and unchecked, or the times when we fail to keep a tight rein on the things that we say to other people, when we lash out in anger towards others, when we we sit around and we daydream about all the things that we don't have and yet feel that we deserve, letting envy consume our minds. So much of the book of Deuteronomy is a clear call to resist all such idolatry and evil and sin and rebellion. But the flip side, the encouraging word from these opening verses is that our dumb mistakes do not mess up God's good plans. God's grace covers so much mess in our lives, more than I think we can even imagine His forgiveness extends way further than we might believe to be possible, which gives me great hope. One mistake doesn't necessarily doom you to a life of second best, like you got bumped from first class down into economy, and now you're doomed to have some kid kick you in the back the rest of your life, right? God can take your foolishness, God can take your foolishness, and when you repent and you turn to him for help, he has the power to turn that into faithfulness. To take your failures, however many they are, and turn them into flourishing. If, that is, you will humble yourself and submit to his leadership, his direction, and his lordship. As Moses says, Again, towards the end of the book in chapter 30, when you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and you obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. Mercy secured for us in Jesus Christ at the cross, We celebrate every single Sunday here that grace of God at work in our lives when we repent of our sin and turn to him for help. May God be gracious to us all as we fight to resist that sin and draw near to him instead. Now, There's one more piece of the puzzle that I want to examine briefly here before we move away from this opening section of of Deuteronomy. If you look at verses uh, 3 and 4, More maps. Verse four. After he had defeated, you know, these are words of Moses. After he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of the Bashan, who lived in Asheroth and in Edrei. Whoa! It's like okay, what's more names, more details, more kings. Sometimes they all, you know, we're reading the Old Testament and we kind of skim over this because I'm like, I don't know who these kings are. I don't know where these places are. I don't know what's going on here. So we just jump to the next part, which I totally understand, but sometimes it really does help to slow down and look at what these details are. Sihon was the king of the Amorites. So he was king, I don't know if you can see, this is, whoops, okay, I'll go this way, like this kind of area right here between this river Sion was king of this area and then Og was king maybe of something like that area. So basically all this area in green. Why do you care? Well, the promised land, the place they're headed, that's this little strip over here. The people, they're coming up from over here. What's the problem? All this green, the only way into the land is occupied territory. And King Sion, he's put up Basically, a huge do not enter, go away sign on his borders. Like, please, can we come through? He's like, no, go away. The way forward for the people seems impossible. But God had other plans in mind. And God gave them victory over both these kings. Maybe here and here, wherever the battles were. God, we read, they had victory over this entire region. And here's what I want you to see here. After the crushing failure to enter the promised land at Kadesh Barnea, it would have been easy for the people to focus on the past, to dwell on all their defeats, to be frustrated at their failures, to lose confidence concerning their future. But these two victories, coming as they do, right at the end of their desert wanderings, right as they stand on the edge of the promised land, they attest to God's faithfulness and God's power. So why does Moses bring this up in these opening lines of his very final sermon to the people? Because another key theme in Deuteronomy is to remember and not to forget. To remember all the ways God has sustained them through their wanderings. To remember all the ways God had fed them and provided for them to remember his faithfulness and his constancy to remember all his mighty works in bringing them out of slavery in Egypt to remember his care and concern for them because the temptation would always be to forget to doubt to attribute their success to and their blessing to their own hard work the temptation would be to forget God's presence in their lives and in so doing turn away from their only true source of life. and So as they stood on the edge of their future, Moses knew there could be no margin for error. They had to have full trust and confidence in God's ability to follow through on his promise, to give them the land that he had sworn to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The people needed to be reminded, not just of the great acts like like the parting of the Red Sea and, and, and uh, the giving of the law, but also the, the more mundane, if you will, victories, like just a battle. You see, fear of the future is often rooted in forgetfulness of the past. Fear of the future is often rooted in our forgetfulness of the past. It's too easy to obsess about what God might allow to happen in an uncertain and unknowable future while ignoring all the ways that God has already cared for us in the past. So when Moses called the people to forge ahead in in boldness and confidence, he did so by rooting that in the cold, hard facts detailing God's care and provision for them throughout their past. And the same is true for you and me also. Don't forget the small victories in life. Where and how has God been at work in your life? Not just in in big ways, but in dozens of small ways as well. Keep a prayer journal to keep track, and you can look back and see over the years the things you may have forgotten, the ways that God has answered prayers. Recount God's provisions daily or weekly as part of your your family worship time at home. Regularly share with other people the stories of God's care for you. Like, look at how God provided this week. Look at how God has cared for me this week for my family. Because the more clearly you can see God's hand at work in the past, the more confidence you will have pressing on into the future. As we close uh, the sermon today i don 't know if 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 they, anyone still uses this abbreviation but a few years ago, you, you see a lot of people write y m m v right your mileage may vary right basically a way of saying, look, you know what works for me may not work for you like I had a great time at this hotel, but i don 't know your mileage may vary, maybe different experience it 's like i 'm hedging my bets i don 't I'll let you know some advice, but I don't know. It may end up being different for you. And if I was Moses standing there on the plains of Moab, in my own human strength, I think I might have been tempted to put a big YMMV disclaimer on all my advice, right? I mean, he had already seen thousands and thousands of people die along the way during the Exodus. Wars, plagues, uh, famines, rebellions. He knew that he himself was about to die. He would never go into the promised land. Who could really be sure about what was going to happen next? And today, as your pastor, I have no idea what's going to happen next in your lives. As you graduate from school, as you change careers, as you face unexpected suffering and difficulty. But for those who are in Christ There really is no such thing as your mileage may vary. Moses spoke with absolute confidence about the future. Not because he was blind to the obstacles and difficulties that lay ahead. Not because he was ignoring the fact that there will be pain and suffering and even death in the future. But because he had full confidence in the presence and the provision and the power of Yahweh to see them through it all. And the same exact thing is true for us today. Look, my hope is in who God is, not what specifically He's going to do in the future. My hope is in a relationship that I have with my God, not in a certain set of results that I'm hoping that He will bring to fruition. My hope is rooted in Jesus Christ, not in a certain set of particular outcomes. So my encouragement to you all is to walk forward into the unknown in full confidence that the same God who has always gone before you continues to go before you today. Leading, guiding, preparing the way. The same God. He never, ever changes. He remains the same. We, we change, right? Our situations and struggles change. But he stays the same. His character stays the same. He will strengthen you. He will sustain you. And he will be with you always. As Asaph says in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen.